Three rings for elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. And one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And nerd alert, we're doing a Tolkien (laughs) episode today. Uh, That's right. Uh, Of course, the cold open there was from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, which was written in stages between 1937 and 1949. I, I imagine everyone listening to this is familiar with... The Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we'll, we'll try to make it fun even if you're not. But uh, yeah, Robert, you, you got bit by the Lord of the Rings bug this week apparently and you wanted to talk about the One Ring of Power, see if there's any way we could give it the stuff to blow your mind treatment. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about Tolkien recently. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I read Tolkien when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched the movies when they came out. I watched the animated films when uh, when they were around. And uh, and then I kind of took a break, and then I came back and read The Hobbit to my son. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I hope to read The Lord of the Rings to him. Uh, oh, wait, when did uh, the the classic quote? Uh, you were reading it to him at some point, weren't you? When he said, "Is it the Lord of the Rings yet?" Yeah, yeah, he kind of uh, <laughs> got a little bored with the opening. But at this point, like he's yeah, he's super into Harry Potter. I think he's pretty much ready for the Lord of the Rings. But all but, right, you know, The Hobbit is better for for younger readers as well. Mm-hmm. But it got me thinking a lot about the Ring. Uh, and its its nature, its powers, and and also it, the task of, of applying real world science to the One Ring and seeing what we could potentially figure out. Uh, it'll have to be a little bit of loosey goosey real world science, but we'll do our best. Yeah, because obviously the the One Ring, the Ring of Power, is a, an object of intense magical power in the books, created by an intensely magical being in an intensely magical fantasy world. And so our intent here is not to, you know, to cheapen all of that mm-hmm. uh, or anything or to, or to myth bust it or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, just to engage in the fun exercise of saying, okay, okay, if, if we had to make this work with science, <laughs> well, what would the ring be made out of? What are the, the, you know, what are the constraints involved? That sort of thing. Now, the ring of power in Lord of the Rings has got to be one of the, like, ultimate examples of a fantasy MacGuffin, mm-hmm. you know, an object that the, that a plot can be built around. The, there are a lot of these in story. You end up with like, you know, horcruxes and Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's very often, it's just convenient from a storytelling perspective to have a magical object that must be uh, that must be managed and the logistics of which become the, the struggle for the characters in the story. But the ring, I think, also represents more than that. It's an interesting object in itself because of its properties that to some people who own it or wear it, it confers these powers. And we can discuss what the powers are alluded to be in the story uh, in a minute. But also it has this corrupting influence. So it actually, I think, does have a kind of thematic commentary on the way that uh, like possessing great power has the tendency to corrupt people's motives and and way of seeing the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even today, like I mean, certainly throughout human history, we can look to the like the symbolic.
symbolic power of the ring. Um, like rings are used to uh, to signify uh, you know uh, bonds that have been made, social bonds, marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have uh, long symbolized power or uh, or wealth. Uh, uh, the seal ring that might be used as a stamp in wax to show you the sigil of your authority. Right. Uh, of course, there's the Super Bowl ring, right? Which, <laughs> in a, I mean, yeah. really, it, it is as silly as the Super Bowl ring may be. It is, it is, you know, fr- it is drawing from this lineage of the the ring as the symbol of of power and accomplishment. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I, I mean, all that's wrapped up in the the myth of the ring as well. And, you know, not even to get into some of the you know, the various uh, things that Tolkien was drawing on, mm-hmm. you know, the ring cycle, etc. Another token note I want to make is I do want to drive home, even though Joe and I are both, uh, you know, quite familiar with Tolkien, neither of us are like uh, Tolkien experts. Oh, please don't come swinging your sword at us because we left out some Tolkien detail. It, right. I mean, it's happened before. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, we may not hit uh, all the Tolkien pronunciations in this uh, in 100%. <laughs> I can't wait. But, but we're going to give it a shot. So uh, first of all, let me just run through the history of the One Ring for everyone uh, okay. so that we can you know, fully appreciate it here. So you're going beyond the Lord of the Rings. You're going into the, like, the deep lore. Yes, yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I cobbled this together from, uh, uh, from, from uh, rereading some segments of Tolkien's original work, but also from rereading uh, – uh, segments from the, the Tolkien Encyclopedia, oh yeah, which is an excellent book that came out, uh, I believe, in like the the nineties. Uh, I still have a copy of wonderful illustrations throughout. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, without further ado, uh, let me tell you about the One Ring. So, the One Ring was forged in the year sixteen hundred of the Second Age of the Sun by Sauron, forged within the active volcano Mount Doom in the land of Mordor. So Sauron was a former uh, Maya spirit who served the Dark Lord Melkor, uh, who was uh, <laughs> defeated at the end of the First Age of the Sun. And so uh, then Sauron, in the guise of uh, Anatar, the giver of gifts, he seduces the elven smiths into forging uh, the rings of power. Uh, these are the rings that uh, from our opening reading, three rings for the elven king, seven for the dwarves, nine for men. And, uh, you know, so that these may be distributed among, uh, you know, the various uh, intelligent uh, species of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the world. Uh-huh. But then he goes and he forges the one ring himself, the ring that's going to control all of these rings and, and also crackles with other powers we'll discuss. So it's a trick. It's a trap. He's, yeah. he's this godlike being who wants to control the peoples of Middle-earth, the, the elves, the dwarves, the humans. And so he gives them these things that are ostensibly like uh, weapons or, or sort of magical items of power that allow them to, to increase their power and dominance over the world. And once all, once all of those people put the rings on and assume the power for themselves, then he unlocks the trap door in the back of the code, which is that he's got one ring that gives him power over all the other people who are wearing them. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and he t- ends up sort of taking various guises, yeah, during different forms throughout his history you know from the end of the deceiver to the trickster to the to the warlord to mm-hmm. the seeker so uh, his fair form is destroyed in the fall of Numenor 
and he arises again as this dark lord in black armor. This is the one that uh, anyone who's even just sat down to watch uh, the Lord of the Rings films probably remembers from the prologue. Uh-huh. So even if you only made it 10 minutes in, you yeah. saw this part. You saw the, the dark lord in his armor. But this too, this form too was destroyed at the end of the second age of the sun and the ring was lost. But Sauron did not perish because the one ring still existed and his fate is bound to it. Uh, if, if you're more familiar with Harry Potter than Lord of the Rings, you can think of the one ring as like is the horcrux, the single horcrux for Sauron, I suppose. So in his uh, in his reincarnated form without a body, he depends on this ring uh, or else he cannot survive. Right. And so in the year 1000 of the third age of the sun, he rises again as the great lidless eye, uh, seeking the ring, waging the war of the ring. But his adversaries... Uh, have found it first, and they've hatched a plan to destroy it by the only known means, casting it back into the volcanic fires from which it was forged. Okay, so there you got the setting of the Lord of the Rings. So you've got to take this ring back into enemy territory to throw it into a volcano, which is the only way it can be destroyed, the only way to destroy this great enemy god-sorcerer thing. Yes. Um, now, we there are scenes in the movies, and I I'm trying to recall if they're in the book too. I mean, where like, uh, for example, uh, Gimli the dwarf, played by John Rhys Davies in the Peter Jackson movies, uh, you know, they, they're getting the speech about how the ring must be destroyed in order to defeat Sauron. So he just whips out his axe and he's like, "All right, let's bust it." And so he just <laughs> swings his axe at the at the ring, but it doesn't work. Right? He instead, I think his axe breaks on it when he tries to cleave the ring with it. So the ring is. Uh, portrayed as something that is completely indestructible except in the fires of the volcano where it was forged. Yeah, there's a there's a great passage uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring where Gandalf explains all this to Frodo after it's been cast into the fireplace once and Frodo has has tried to will himself to throw it once more into the deepest part of the fire but cannot. Uh-huh. And so Gandalf uh, says the following. But as for breaking the ring, force is useless. Even if you took it and struck it with a heavy sledgehammer, it would make no dent in it. It cannot be unmade by your hands or by mine. Your small fire, of course, would not melt even ordinary gold. This ring has already passed through it unscathed and even unheated. But there is no smith's forge in this shire that could change it at all. Not even the anvils and furnaces of the dwarves could do that. It has been said that dragon fire could melt and consume the rings of power, but there is not now any dragon left on earth in which the old fire is hot enough. Nor was there ever any dragon, not even Ancalagon the Black, who could have harmed the one ring, the ruling ring, for that was made by Sauron himself. There is only one way, to find the cracks of doom in the depths of Orodrun, the fire mountain, and cast the ring in there, if you really wish to destroy it, to put it beyond the grasp of the enemy forever. Thus uh, spoke Gandalf, and uh-huh. Gandalf knew what he was talking about. Uh, by the way, I, I've always thought Sir Ian McKellen made a great Gandalf, but I do have a strong oh. attachment to John Huston's Gandalf uh, in the 1977 animated version <laughs> and, animated, yeah. and the 1980s Return of the King. Um, so uh, the, you know th- that was the token of, of my childhood. And so, uh-huh. uh, so I was trying to summon a little John Huston flavor there, um, uh, my limited ability to do so. The ones that make Saruman into Santa Claus? Like his red robes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I haven't rewatched the, the Return of the King in a while. Uh-huh. Yeah, but uh, 
But I have rewatched The Hobbit. I thought it held up pretty well. You know? I, oh, I totally agree that uh, Ian McKellen is a great Gandalf. In fact, I would say that uh, even if you don't like the movies for any other reason, the, the Peter Jackson films are great just for Ian McKellen's performance. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Christopher Lee, it's, it's got a wonderful oh, cast. Oh, Christopher Lee, of course. That yeah. goes without saying. Uh, so um, another note on the ring, just real quick, not that it's very um, important to what we're going to be talking about for most of the episode, but what happens when you wear the ring? Oh, yeah. I was actually trying to figure this out. Even though I know the story, I was – last night I was Googling, like, what does the ring actually do, you know, other than – we know it confers this kind of vague power, but it actually – does have some specified powers in the mythology. Mm -hmm. I mean, the big one, of course, and this is the one that comes up in The Hobbit as well, is that when you put it on, you become invisible to most creatures. Though at the same time, you become highly visible uh, to certain other beings, namely the Ringwraiths uh, and uh, and Sauron himself. Right. Uh, but it like allows you to sort of shift into uh, another plane of existence mm -hmm. and in doing so become invisible. But I think that's only for some... Creatures who wear it, right? Um, the, the, mean the, the ma making them invisible, right? Yeah, I mean it's. I don't think it's it's implied that when Sauron himself wears that he is invisible, right? Uh, but then again, it's a different matter when you know the Dark Lord himself wears the ring as opposed to when a, a mortal wears the ring. Oh, and I guess another thing to specify is that the One Ring, the powers of the One Ring, may be greater or different. Uh, than the powers of the other rings that were given off to the to the kings of the mortals and the elves. Yes, yeah, it is the it is the great ring. It is the yeah. one that uh, the master himself forged. Um, and uh, you know, one note uh, again about the sort of the, the origins of Sauron is that uh, in his like previous life, uh, you know, as like an unfallen uh, entity, as one of these Maya uh, spirits. He originally served uh, the uh, the Anor Forge God Ayuli, if I'm saying that right, uh, who was uh, you know a god of the forge like Hephaestus. Mm -hmm. So you know he would have had you know presumably had access to all knowledge of metallurgy and uh, and, and metal making and crafting in general. Yeah. Well, maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can explore some uh, questions about what the Ring of Power could possibly be made of. All right, we're back. So, uh, you know, we're going to, again, we're going to cherry pick a little bit here. This is not going to be, a, you know, a perfect uh, dissection of everything. I don't think Tolkien was going for hard sci-fi. No, no. And, and nor would I <laughs> want him to. You know, I mean, I... Uh, oh, my God. Wait, no. That's a brilliant idea. So we've had various <laughs> rewrites of Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, there is the, the rewrite of the story that tells it from Mordor's perspective that casts, like, Gandalf and the elves as, as the villains and says, actually, Mordor is just a... You know, it's just a region of people who are trying to develop industrial technology mm -hmm. and they're being oppressed by these, you know, ancient kingdoms of magic users. Yeah. Uh, and they're fighting back. So th that's like that's which, one which is a wonderful treatment idea. I haven't read it, uh, but it's a wonderful idea because uh, you see that in plenty of like in plenty of myths and, uh, and stories of old where mm -hmm. you yeah, one side is, is cast as the heroes. The other side is the demonic other. Yeah. And the, the reality is, is, you know, is something different than that. There's something more balanced. Probably, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, there's like that take. But here's the take I want now, like the Arthur C. Clarke version of <laughs> Lord of the Rings that tries to tell the same story but just imagines everything is like totally mundane physics and chemistry and, and how all that is achieved. <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's get into, I guess, some of the chemistry here. Um, so uh, let's just start by talking about things you could throw a ring into in an attempt to melt it. Okay. All uh, right. So, so to refresh again, you've got this ring of power. You need to destroy it to defeat the bad guy, but you can't just throw it in a regular fire. The heroes can't do anything about it except take it back to the volcano where it was made. That's the only thing that will destroy it. Right. In terms of fire sources, Gandalf says fireplace isn't going to cut it. A dwarven furnace isn't going to cut it. Only the volcano can, can cut it. Okay. So let's talk about the temperatures involved here. So uh, first of all, let's take the Hobbit's fireplace. Okay. If you look for a, you know, you look at a maximum open wood fireplace temperature. Um, I, I was looking around for sources on this. I I, I found a, a few diff- different ones that, that more or less match up. Uh, Hearth.com, which <laughs> indeed is a place for people who are just into fireplaces to talk about fireplaces. <laughs> uh, they, Does it have like a message board? About yeah, it's, fi- a, it's a full message board. Oh my yeah. god. But it lists great. It lists an average uh, fireplace as being somewhere between um, uh, 1,200 degrees to uh, 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. I've also seen it as high as 1,600, um, again, for the hottest part of the fire. Uh, where Frodo uh, never actually throws it because the will of the ring prevents it. Uh, and as far as Celsius, we'd be talking a range of roughly, what, 649 to 871 degrees. Okay. Uh, and and to clarify there, I guess this doesn't really matter for the episode, but that's another thing about the ring is that the wi- the ring sort of has a will of its own. Mm-hmm. And so it even when a character wants to destroy it, the ring sort of messes with their mind and, and says, maybe you shouldn't destroy it. So it's implied here that maybe Frodo was trying to destroy it, but he hedged a bit. He <laughs> threw it into the cooler part of the fire. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I'm not sure uh, about that. Like the first time it goes into the fire. Yeah, per- perhaps though. I mean, really, mm-hmm. probably because that's how the ring works and that's how it, it works its will. Okay. So uh, the Hobbit's fireplace, we'll come back to those, uh, the, that actual temperature again. Uh, do Hobbit's fireplaces get hotter than, than other fireplaces or not as hot? I know. I would assume they're just as hot as any fireplace. This okay. is standard. You know, I mean, it's an open fireplace. Okay. Now let's, uh, so, you know, the dwarves, they're really into working metal, right? Yes. So yeah, dwarves are known for their metal work. So this makes us wonder what is the maximum temperature of a furnace, but specifically we should think about a medieval furnace, right? Because right. essentially the fantasy world of the Lord of the Rings is a, is a medieval world. Yeah, they're not in some like steel foundry of today. Right. So a typical blast furnace today, that's going to reach temperatures of up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or um, uh, 1,650 degrees Celsius. But during the Middle Ages, smelting temps in Europe were not quite that high. So I was looking around uh, for a source on this, and I uh, ran across a, a website uh, called uh, rlima.net. And uh, this is uh, by uh, Bert Hall from the Institute of, uh, for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto. And he says the following, quote, The temperature inside the furnace is a critical variable. Most early smelters in Europe could reach average temperatures of about 700 degrees Celsius, and uh, that would be uh, 1,292 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And he continues, now pure iron has a very high melting point, about uh, 1,530 degrees Celsius, and that would be uh, 2,786 degrees Fahrenheit. So when the newly formed mass of iron coalesces at 700 degrees, it remains a red-hot, slightly plastic solid called a bloom. The smith can hammer on this hot mass to shape it and to make it extrude lumps of impurities that it might otherwise congeal around. Hmm. 
So that would give us a basic temperature to work with here, 700 degrees Celsius or uh, uh, 1,292 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So one thing that points out, which might be relevant to what we're talking about here, is you don't have to fully reach the melting point of a metal in order to do something to it. Right. Right. You can you can work with metal that's not fully liquefied. You can just get it up to a temperature where its strength is reduced and you can deform it. Right. Just hammer the cuss out of it once uh-huh. it's soft. You don't have to like reduce it into a liquid that you pour into a mold or something. Right. Um, so and, – and, and, but one of the things that Gandalf mentions too is you can't just beat this thing with a hammer and expect to destroy it either. So my read on this to sort of you know, uh, you know, underpin what we're talking about here is if we think of the ring, think of it like a, like a, a, a mythical magical creature like a vampire or something where mm-hmm. you can't just shoot it. You have to behead it or completely immolate it. Okay. Like there must – you must reach a threshold of absolute destruction to keep it from you know, healing itself or, or, or whatnot. Okay. So maybe the idea is if you slightly deformed the ring, it would kind of bounce back because, again, the, the, the ring has a will of its own. Yeah, that, that's my imperfect read on this because some people might say, well, technically Gandalf says the ring doesn't even get hot in the fire. OK, fine. But, that's true. But, oh, I was also <laughs> trying to look for things about that, about like metals that don't get hot when heat – I guess that would be poor thermal conductors. Uh, there are some like, like bismuth is a metal mm. that is a poor thermal conductor. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that, that Tolkien had in mind that the ring was made out of bismuth. Of course, bismuth has a, has a much lower melting point, right. so uh, that probably, easily melted in a furnace. Yeah. So I, anyway, I'm going to stick to my interpretation that to destroy the ring of power, you would have to destroy it absolutely. You would have to just completely either shatter it into uh, into dust, or even better and, and more you know easily done in a, in a world like this, melt it into nothing. But as we've discussed already. A fireplace isn't going to do it, and a dwarven furnace isn't going to be able to do it either, assuming that it's you know, more or less a parallel to medieval uh, smelting technology. All right. So apparently you've got to use a volcano, but that makes me wonder, how hot do volcanoes get? Do they actually get hotter than furnaces? Yes, uh, they do. So I was looking into this. Um, you know, so Mount Doom is a volcano. We have volcanoes, so uh, <laughs> luckily we can we can definitely you know we can definitely look to that. Like the the volcano isn't going to change. You can't say, oh, it's a dwarven volcano. Maybe it would have been different. No, it's a volcano. So we're talking about the temperature of magma, uh, and there are a few different types of magma to consider. So, for instance, there's a, a basaltic magma, which is high in iron, magnesium, and calcium, but low in potassium and sodium, and it ranges in temperature from about a thousand Celsius to uh, one thousand. Uh, 200 Celsius, and that's uh, uh, between uh, uh, 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit and 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and, uh, and a specific example of this, fountaining magma from uh, Kupayanaha, um, uh, it's a, vol- a volcano in Hawaii, uh, and this is uh, uh, basalt uh, magma here. Uh, the magma in the lake there has been uh, uh, recorded to reach temperatures of 1,153 degrees Celsius or 2,107.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and that was on January 19, 1990. Uh, this according to Pinkerton et al., uh, a hot year for lava. <laughs> right. And this is thought to be a reasonable uh, reflection of the internal lava temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing to, to keep in mind is that the, the lava 
the lava at the surface is going to cool off very quickly when it contacts the air, mm-hmm. dropping hundreds of degrees in a second. This pointed out in a, an excellent um, article in the New York Times by C. Claiborne Ray titled, How Hot Can Lava Get? Uh, so I recommend, Good question. Yeah, I recommend that for anyone who wants a, a deeper dive. But Now, there are a few other different types of magma as well, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to skip over those because we've already touched on the hottest magma. Uh-huh. And, well, and it's, it's Mount Doom, so it should be the hottest magma. Maybe we should because the other – Magma names sound like Tolkien words. Oh. Andesitic magma. Yeah. You've got them here. Rhyolitic magma. Rhyolitic sounds very Tolkien. It is, yeah. Uh, Dacite is R- the, the other one. Rhyolitriel. <laughs> But but these are these are all going to have you know these are going to be cooler. They're still magma. They're still very hot. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're going to stick with the with the, with the, the hottest magma for our purposes here. And again, the hottest magma we've considered here is one thousand two hundred degrees Celsius or two thousand one hundred ninety two degrees Fahrenheit. And the medieval forge temperatures uh, you know are seemingly in the range of seven hundred degrees Celsius or one thousand two hundred ninety two degrees Fahrenheit. So it's definitely a situation where the the the, the forge is. Not not as hot as the magma. Like we hmm. can at least we can at least say that yes, this makes sense. That something that could not be burned in a dwarven forge could still be burned, uh, could be still be melted away inside of a volcano. Now, if we were talking about a modern furnace, that would uh, that'd be a significantly different issue. Yes. So a modern furnace is going to uh, trump the mountain. And and I think you know Gandalf mentions dragon fire, like nice, healthy smog. Dragon fire mm-hmm. could have done it. And if we think of that as being more or less on par with perhaps a modern blast furnace, uh, that would have been like uh, you know three thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Um, then then yeah, that's 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 another number to just sort of keep in the back of our mind as we proceed here. So what you should have done is just give somebody the ring and then get them to go annoy a dragon. But there are no more dragons left, or at least none that are healthy enough to do this. That's oh. that's Gandalf's point. Because yeah. Smog could have probably done it, but you, you already killed off Smog right. in the first book. So thanks, Bard. <laughs> Also, you know, Smog wouldn't have gone along with that plan. He would have. Uh, he uh, sniffed it out. Too yeah. clever for that. <laughs> so, so that leaves us to consider all, like all the elements then, <laughs> and which ones have a high enough melting point that they would be beyond the melting abilities of a, a, of the dwarven furnace, mm-hmm. but within the melting abilities of the volcano. Okay, that makes sense to me. So, again, the highest temperature we've reached here via magma. 2,192 degrees Fahrenheit or 1,200 degrees Celsius. And when we start looking at the melting points of various elements, there, there are elements that are below that, that melting point. There are also uh, elements that have a much higher melting point mm-hmm. that, we, that you, could, you could not fully melt even within the fires of Mount Doom. Well, unless you assumed that Mount Doom is somehow uh, magical in some way. Right. Now, one of, the, one of the problems, I guess, here is though when you start looking at some just like standard metals that could be, uh, you know, th- th- that, could, that you could forge a ring out of, uh, even some of them, like we're dealing with some pretty high uh, melting points, like mm-hmm. uh, melting point of iron is um, uh, 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, melting point of steel gets up that high as well. Uh, so, like, these are already 
um, you know, these are going to be beyond the ability of of, uh, of Mount Doom to fully melt if that's what, indeed what we have to depend on. Uh-huh. And then you look at other things like uh, like a palladium has a melting point of uh, two thousand eight hundred and thirty point eighty two degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, tungsten uh, six thousand one hundred and ninety two degrees Fahrenheit. Uranium two thousand and seventy degrees Fahrenheit. You know, th- these are again for for absolute melting uh, to take place. Uh, so, you know, that kind of muddies things a bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, but then again, one other thing to think about Sauron is that like he's a powerful entity. I wonder, is he even limited by just going to the shores of the volcanic lake? Like maybe he can go down within the volcano. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he can, you know, he can go to even you know, greater depths in the earth. And, uh, and that's where the forging is taking place. You know, that like this is something that is forged not merely within a volcano, but within like the heart of the, the earth. The depths of Mount Doom, not, not the surface of Mount Doom. Right. Now, uh, I, I ended up like making a whole list of different <laughs> elements and their melting points in both Celsius and Fahrenheit, which I am I'm going to not read that entire list because it's okay. gonna, it would get it would get <laughs> tedious fast. Uh, and also, you know, when we throw a bunch of numbers at you, I know it's it's not going to necessarily do anything. But basically, you know, there's a whole range here: things with greater and lesser uh, uh, melting points, but not all of them are going to be quite suitable for crafting anything out of. Uh, you know, especially a ring. Uh, and, and God bless the internet for this, but there are, there are tons of discussions online reg- regarding whether you could make a sword out of any given element. So there'll be a lot of, you know, some of these are, are you know, fantasy or sci-fi or uh-huh. sometimes, you know, more, they're more like, you know, sword nerd websites and someone will be like, could I make a sword out of uranium? Mm-hmm. And people will be like, well, not a very good sword. Yes, you could make, you could make a sword, but it would be heavy. It wouldn't, the fact that it was made out of uranium wouldn't really give you much of an advantage in combat, that sort of thing. Or, uh, you know, titanium being another one where similar questions are asked, uh, you know, where you know, if a pure titanium sword, it sounds great in a, you know, fantasy uh, sense, but when you start looking at the details there, well, it would be, uh, you know, it would, it would be more, it would be brittle. It wouldn't hold up to repeated use, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the more impressive elements that pops up, though, is tungsten. Um, Tungsten uh, has a, a melting point of 6,192 degrees Fahrenheit or 3,422 degrees Celsius. And it has a number of industrial uses due to its durability, and it's used in alloys uh, for this purpose as well because it is very resistant to heat. Not only is tungsten potentially a great choice for the one ring, uh, you, you can actually go online right now and you can order tungsten or tungsten alloy replicas of the one ring from the Lord of the Rings movie. Okay. So I don't think we're breaking any new ground by saying maybe tungsten. Um, so you can heat them up and they'll glow. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There weren't any product images that showed people <laughs> heating them up in their Hobbit, uh, in their Shire uh, 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 hearths. Uh-huh. Uh, but an interesting thing about uh, about something like tungsten, because because it might you know forces you to ask, well, how do you forge something with such a high temperature? So it's it's not worked like other metals in a forge. What you do is is you take powdered tungsten. And it's generally mixed with small amounts of, say, powdered nickel or other metals. And then it is sintered or formed into a coherent mass by heating without melting. Hmm. So this could conceivably be um, the forging technology that, uh, that Sauron acquires from the, you know, the, the, the smelting lords of old uh-huh. and uh, brings into his creation of the One Ring. Uh, you know, the, again, there's still 
some problems there when you start saying, well, then, you know, how, how is it destroyed then? Uh, but uh, but I, I think tungsten is a, you know, a reasonable guess if we're going to limit ourselves to the, you know, the scientific world for making guesses about, uh, you know, highly powerful magical objects. How about some crazier guesses? Yeah. Well, well let's, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get crazier with our guesses regarding the material that was used to compose the One Ring. All right, we're back. We're talking about the One Ring and uh, what it could conceivably be made of, aside from magic. Okay, I think we're getting into weirder possible answers now. But I was just trying to figure out, you know, there's that there's that scene where Gimli tries to smash it with his axe, mm-hmm. and you have to assume that since Gimli Gimli's a he's a tough dude, right? Yeah, he should be able to cleave just about any middle earthly material with a swift blow of his mighty axe, right? So, uh, what could withstand his might and Furthermore, I should point out, in the movie version with Peter Jackson, it's John Rhys-Davies. And even if Gimli couldn't smash the ring, John Rhys-Davies should be able to smash the <laughs> ring. He, I mean, he brings the Sala energy. <laughs> so whatever that is, I have to assume it's got to be like the strongest material in the entire world. So what is the strongest material in the entire world? I think it depends on whether you're counting – uh, hypothetical materials that may exist somewhere in the universe mm-hmm. versus materials that we can actually touch here in the lab. Uh, but maybe first we go to the hypothetical materials somewhere in the universe. So it is the fate of some dying stars to become a neutron star. Recently on the podcast, also, we've been talking about black holes, and and this is a similar story. You've got a massive star, maybe something with about 10 times the mass of the sun. It grows old. It uses up its hydrogen fuel. It begins fusing heavier elements, and then it uses those up. It can't hold itself up with the energy of its fusion anymore, and it eventually explodes in a supernova. So the heavy core collapses. The outer structure of lighter materials gets blown out into space in this enormous blast of energy and matter. And what's left behind is this incredibly dense core, and gravity causes it to collapse in on itself. And uh, if the core is dense enough, it can go over the edge, of course, and become a black hole. But if it's not dense enough, it becomes a neutron star, the densest non-black hole object in the universe. So basically, the densest thing that doesn't break our theories of physics. So these leftover star cores display bizarre nuclear chemistry because of how dense they are. You can tell from the name neutron star, they tend to have an overwhelming population of neutrons, the subatomic particles that are electrically neutral. And this is because the intense gravity of the object presses positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons together, and they combine to form neutrons. And so neutron stars have physical properties that are amazing to read about and impossible to picture. They can cram more than the mass of the sun into a sphere that's roughly just a dozen miles or so across, like the mass of the sun inside a ball the size of a city. Mm. And for a long time, it's been a mystery of astrophysics what exactly the inner layers of a neutron star are made of. 
But more recently, physicists have created these simulations of what should be happening inside the flesh of a neutron star. And they show these strange types of ultra-dense material probably living underneath the outer crust of neutron stars. And these materials are known as nuclear pasta. They're named that because in the simulations, they sometimes resemble different pasta shapes. Ah. Uh, and like th these different pasta shapes that would form at different strata of the neutron star, I think. So you get nuclear spaghetti, you get gnocchi, you get bucatini or anti-spaghetti, <laughs> and you get lasagna sheets. Now, obviously, because of the incredible density of this neutron-swollen material, it's probably going to be hard to cleave it with an axe. But how strong is it? Well, I was looking at one study from 2018 by Kaplan, Schneider, and Horowitz called Elasticity of Nuclear Pasta in Physical Review Letters. And uh, some of this nuclear pasta, they concluded, is probably the strongest material in the entire universe 10 billion times stronger than steel. Hmm. Is that strong enough for you? That's pretty strong. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could tell the difference between 10 billion times stronger than steel and 10,000 times stronger than steel. I mean, what what is the difference there? But Yeah, I mean, it's, it just places it in orders of magnitude beyond the ability of uh, a dwarven axe to, uh, to deal with or a dwarven furnace. I would have to say that no matter how strong Gimli is, no matter how sharp his axe, he probably cannot mess with a ring made of nuclear pasta. So nuclear pasta, that's over the edge. You know, you, you can't destroy it unless you got some kind of magic working in Mount Doom. Obviously, it wouldn't melt in Mount Doom, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is another one where it is forcing me to rethink what I said earlier about the about absolute destruction of the ring being uh -huh. necessary to render it powerless. I, I feel like there's still a threshold of destruction that needs to be uh, wrought on the ring before it uh, snaps and loses mm -hmm. its power and the, the Dark Lord is defeated. But I think that that threshold probably falls short of actually melting it. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a moral defeat rather than a, <laughs> than a yeah. physical destruction. Yeah, or, or whatever is like it has to become malleable enough mm -hmm. for the magic to leave it. Uh, and for, for that to happen, it needs to it needs to fall into a volcano or, mm -hmm. or, or even the depths of a volcano. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of reasons why n nuclear pasta is probably not a good candidate to make a ring out of. One is that it is probably a bit too heavy. Another mm -hmm. is that it would, I, I assume it would not react well with the atmosphere of an environment like Middle Earth. It <laughs> might sort of, you know, become a big explosion or something. But, uh, but all, you know, just imagine you had a stable ring made of nuclear pasta. It's probably too heavy to make an effect ring. A commonly cited figure is that about a teaspoon of the material that makes up a neutron star would weigh more than a billion tons. Oh, wow. So th that would be a difficult ring to wear. Uh, you might need some help carrying it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's believable, I guess, that you know, Sauron could, could carry it. I mean, mm -hmm. being that he's a, such a powerful entity. But I don't know about a hobbit. Now, is there anything lighter that is still strong with a high melting point? One good candidate, I think, here, though it is a modern invention, is graphene. Ah. Graphene is carbon, of course. It's just carbon. Uh, but it's carbon with a special molecular formation. It's a single layer of hexagonal rings of carbon, uh, carbon molecules locking with other hexagons at every vertex. And it's one atom thick, but 
sort of perfect on the molecular level. And it's often thought of as a kind of cutting-edge supermaterial. It does have some amazing properties. It's electrically conductive, so it has been singled out for potential uses in, in future electronics. It's extremely light, while at the same time being stronger than steel. I've seen estimates including between 200 and 300 times stronger than steel. Though a problem with graphene is that it's difficult to produce on a large scale. Uh, not that it's necessarily difficult to produce in general. I was reading about one method that can create layers of graphene just by heating up soybean oil, <laughs> but uh, you, you don't get a lot out of it. Now, I like this idea that the the ring is is not just a material but a metamaterial. You know, I mean, uh, which it, which makes perfect sense. I mean, this is the the product of a being that studied at the at the forge of the gods. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, therefore, like we're we, you know we're trying to limit him and his abilities based on, you know, medieval or even modern uh, levels of, 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 of metallurgical uh, power and knowledge. Right. right. We're thinking about him as like sort of a magical smith. Maybe instead we should be thinking about him as some kind of material scientist. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there, I was looking at one paper dealing with the melting point of graphene. I was wondering what that is. It's really high. Uh, it was – so this was in physical chemistry, chemical physics. Uh, I don't know if that's a double name. Uh, th- that was the journal by Gans, Gans, Yang, and Dornfield in 2017 called The Initial Stages of Melting of Graphene Between 4,000K and 6,000K. That's really hot. The authors say graphene has one of the highest melting points of any known substance. Uh, basically, they – they use these uh, models to, to say, okay, what would it look like if you heated up graphene to these temperatures for these lengths of time? And uh, they found that you could heat graphene up for a certain amount of time to 4,500 degrees Kelvin, which is really hot, and it still wouldn't melt. Uh, it would just sort of uh, – it, it would it would still be freestanding. And they said around 5,000 degrees Kelvin, the system would start to melt. 5,000 degrees Kelvin is roughly 4,700 Celsius or 8,500 Fahrenheit. That's – is that hotter than any of the other stuff we looked at? Yeah, that's that's pretty hot. (laughs) Okay. So the surface of the sun at roughly 5,800 degrees Kelvin could probably melt this form of graphene. But a normal volcano wouldn't be enough to melt the graphene one ring. So is Mount Doom hotter than the surface of the sun? Are there special properties involved here? No, but this would this would make me come back to the idea that uh, at least in, in, with the problem of its forging, what if Sauron had to go to the volcano not to forge it at the shores of the volcanic lake but like descended to the center of the planet? where you would have temperatures that would be uh, you know, on par with the surface of the sun. As for then destroying it by casting it into the volcano, well, that's, that's where you end up in a, in a problematic area again mm. because if that's the case, if it needs to reach the center of the planet to be destroyed, well, then that means the, the end of the Lord of the Rings is not an end at all mm. and that the Dark Lord was never defeated and is, is uh, you know, destined to return time and time again. The end question mark? No, this is a perfect uh, explanation for why the end of the third movie went on for seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> they were waiting for the ring to sink, sink low enough to really get hot enough to melt under all that pressure. Yeah. Uh, and another main problem with graphene, I should say – well, I already mentioned this. It, it's, so the problem is that it's, it's hard to manufacture large amounts of it. But I don't know if that would be a problem for Sauron because what if he just needed enough for one little hobbit finger-sized ring? That's true. Though, of course, when he's, a, when he's the Dark Lord, he's somewhat bigger in it and it still fits around his finger. That's a good question. I was wondering about this very thing. 
how does the ring fit a hobbit finger just fine, but also fit the fingers of much larger creatures just as well? Hmm. I mean, maybe. Do they address that? They, they don't. It's just magic. That's what magical rings do. <laughs> One size fits all. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could, I guess you could go really sci-fi crazy and say, well, the ring is actually composed out of uh, like nano robotic material that is, you know, these, these, these tiny nanobots that, that fuse together and carry out all these various processes to, you know, to, to do all the things that the ring does. But I don't know. At that point, you're really, you're really busting the magic out of it. Uh, I, like, I like the idea of, of keeping some level of magic in the ring and not, not describing it all away. Nope, you already ruined it. The ring is nanobots. <laughs> That's what it is now and forevermore. All right, so there you have it. Um, this is one of those episodes where I guess we don't really have a conclusive answer, and you know, nor should we. Uh, but hopefully, we've given some, given you some food for thought, and uh, and also provided an excuse and a, and a means of of discussing, you know, some of the the temperatures and melting points involved here. Um, if, if we'd love to hear from anyone out there who is uh, you know, a big Tolkien fan uh, or someone who is uh, you know, certainly more experienced than us with, uh, uh, with the use of forges, uh, with, uh, with some of these materials, uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to get your thoughts on it as well. Uh, and for that matter, are there other Tolkien-related uh, topics <laughs> you'd like us to, to tease apart? I think I wrote a piece for How Stuff Works years ago about Hobbit metabolism. Uh, which uh, which actually there like there were there were at least a couple of uh, of papers I was able to cite uh, for the really? article where people were like okay let's see how much second does, breakfast yeah how much yeah. does a hobbit eat and then and so forth so uh, yeah look that up it's on howstuffworks.com. In the meantime, if you want more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. And if you're interested in uh, you know, other, let's say not magical inventions, but more mundane but equally amazing inventions, check out our other podcast, Invention. You can find it at InventionPod.com. And you can find both shows wherever you get your podcast. Wherever you do get it, just make sure you rate and review because that really helps us out in the long run. Huge thanks to our producers, uh, Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us to, with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.